Hello and welcome to another episode of Demimond Paranormal Podcast. In tonight's episode, we are going to focus on the more mysterious aspects of life. The things that we still don't know the answer to. Whether it be paranormal or not. In tonight's episode, we are going to be looking at two famous unsolved cases throughout history. One case in particular that we're going to be looking at is the case of Jack the Ripper. And the other case takes place all the way in Germany. And that case is known as Hinterkaifecht. I hope you enjoy this episode as it's a little bit different for us to cover. And I hope you stay tuned for future episodes as well. And I'm going to end this introduction and just dive right into it. I hope to see you guys there. In London, in 1888, a madman had been brutally slaying and killing five prostitutes. Some believe him to be some type of doctor. A doctor with a vengeance. The reason why they why they say this is because of the preciseness of the removal of organs. They say it had to be someone with such such an amount of substantial knowledge of human anatomy. And the culprit was never found. No one knows who he or she was or why exactly he did it. Some say it was a man with syphilis. But then again, who knows? Tonight, I'm going to take each and every one of you into the story of Jack the Ripper. And I'm going to let you guys decide who you think the culprit was. I'm going to tell you about some of the suspects that the Scotland Yard thought they had in mind. And I'm going to tell you about some of the grisly murders that happened in Whitechapel which is a pretty much impoverished part of London. Alright, let's dive right in. So, as we know, Jack the Ripper, Jack the Ripper was never caught. And he still remains one of England's, and the world's even, one of the most infamous criminals. All five killings that were discovered have been attributed to Jack the Ripper. And each killing took place within a mile of each other, in or near the Whitechapel district of London's East End. (laughs) 
These murders occurred from August 7th to September 10th, 1888. There were several other murders that occurred around that time period that have also been investigated, but they, some people, but they were believed to be the work of Jack the Ripper. Another nickname for Jack the Ripper would be Leather Apron. Which I think leather, leather apron has to do with a butcher, but I'm not exactly sure. So, a number of letters were allegedly sent by the killer to the London Metropolitan Police Service, which is often known as Scotland Yard. And these letters would taunt officers about his gruesome activities and the speculating on murders to come. The moniker Jack the Ripper originates from a letter that may have may have or may have not been a hoax, and it was published during the time of these attacks. So needless to say, somebody you know, it could have been the actual killer who wrote the letter or some person who just wanted attention and they you know, pretended to be the killer just to fool everybody and scare everybody, lead them in the wrong direction. Despite countless investigations claiming definitive evidence of the brutal killer's identity, his or her name and motives are still unknown even to this day. So let's get into a little bit of the backstory of Whitechapel, which is located in London, and it's the east end of London. And like I said before, it was a pretty much impoverished place. Um, it had a lot of citizens and a lot of immigrants, um, where there were skilled immigrants, mainly Jews and Russians. They came there to begin a new life and start businesses. But, you know, the district was notorious for squalor, violence, and crime. Now, prostitution was only illegal if the practice caused a public disturbance and thousands of brothels and low-rent lodging houses provided sexual services during the late 19th century. At that time, the death or murder of a working girl was rarely reported in the press or discussed within polite society. The the reality was that the ladies of the night, aka prostitutes, were subject to physical attacks, which sometimes resulted in death. Among these common crimes was the attack of English prostitute Emma Smith, who was beaten and raped with an object by four men. Smith, who had died, is remembered as one of the unfortunate female victims who were killed by gangs demanding protection money. However, this series of killings that began on in August 1888 stood out from all the other violent crimes marked by sadistic butchery. This suggests a mind of a sociopath and hateful 
they, they suggested that these killings were more sociopathic and hateful than most citizens could comprehend. So, what made these killings of prostitutes different from a, an, an attack from some gang or a, a nasty guy that an unfortunate prostitute had to encounter? Well, these killings were so much different that when Jack the Ripper would kill, he actually mutilated and disemboweled women removing organs such as kidneys and uteruses and youth and that obviously displayed displayed a detestment for the female gender so let's start with some of these sites of where the bodies were found by people and the police Okay, our first stop in the first victim here is Mary Nichols on Bucks Row, which is now Dorward Street. And she was found on August 31st, 1888. And she was found at 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888. And she was found by a carter named Charles Cross. Who was on his way to work. Jack the Ripper's second victim was found on 29 Hanbury Street and that was the murder of Annie Chapman on the 8th of September 1888. She was found at 6 she was found at 6 a.m. in the backyard of somebody's house. She yeah After an absence of an absence of several weeks, Jack the Ripper returned with his third victim on the 30th of September in 1888, and he killed two women in a space of one hour. The body of the first victim was Elizabeth Stride, who was found in Dutchfield Yard, which is off of Burner Street. She was found at 1 a.m. And the second victim was found at 1.45 a.m. on Meter Square. It was the body of Catherine Endos. And she was found in Meter Square in the city of London. She was found by P.C. Watkins as he patrolled his and our last and final victim was found on Dorset Street and it was the murder of Mary Kelly she was murdered on the 9th of November 1888 she was found in her room in Miller's Court off of Dorset Street in Spitalfields so Wendy's murders were happening, they were originally thought to be gang-related, considering where these murders were taking place and the victims, of, and of their profession of the victims. On the 7th of September, 1888, the Weekly Herald commented on the police investigation into Jack the Ripper murders, which were at that time known as the Whitechapel murders 
they reported on the murder of Mary Nichols, which had taken place on the 31st of August. Now, I quote what the Weekly Herald said. The officers engaged in the case are pushing their inquiries into the neighborhood as the doings of certain gangs known to frequent that locality and an opinion was gaining around amongst them that the murderers of the same who committed the two previous murders near the same spot is believed that these gangs who made their appearance during the early hours of the morning are in the habit of blackmailing these unfortunate women and when their demands are refused violence follows and in order to avoid their deeds being brought to light, they put away their victims. They have been under the observation of the police for some time past, and it, it is believed with the prospect of a reward and a free pardon. Some of them might be persuaded to turn Queen's evidence when some startling revelations might be expected. So that's what the Weekly Herald had to say on the police investigation suggesting that they originally thought that it was gang related violence against the prostitutes in the area the Whitechapel area in early September of 1888 the powers that were at Scotland Yard which was the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police decided that local knowledge was what was needed if the perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders was to be apprehended. Now this is when Inspector Aberlein was brought in. To this end, Inspector Frederick George Aberlein, who was an officer who had been promoted out of the area to the the previous December, after 14 years spent patrolling and getting to know the neighborhood and its criminal elements, was drafted back into the district to take overall charge of the ground Jack the Ripper investigations. It was evidently believed that Aberlein's local, local, law, local knowledge would provide invaluable in hunting down the killer in bringing him to justice. So did Jack the Ripper know his victims? An important aspect of a murder investigation is looking at the victim's immediate circle and ascertaining who amongst them had a motive or a grudge and the opportunity to commit the crime. However, since Jack the Ripper was an opportunistic killer, who was most certainly did not know his victims, this would have been of little to no use to Aberlein and his fellow detectives. So since the victims didn't know their killer, it was therefore impossible to identify their murderer amongst their associates. The Victorian detectives had to fall back upon another methods of trying to trace him. High on their list of police investigative methods would have been a 
thorough knowledge of the local criminals. This is where it was believed Aberlene's knowledge of the locality would come in to be useful. It was hoped that a little well-applied police persuasion might cause one of the local villains to turn into an informer and hand the murderer right to the police. But since Jack the Ripper probably worked alone, and all, in all likelihood was not a member of any criminal fraternity, this line of inquiry was ultimately doomed for failure. Now, the police did not work with the press at all during this time. There was a large amount of distrust in the police force in the in the press. The police did not trust the press at all, which is a bit different from how we, you know, um, handle police, handle crime investigations today. A lot of times, police will go to the press and tell about their findings, but not back in these days, not back in the late 19th century. But that doesn't mean that the press didn't cover the murders. It was widely received by all of the locals of Whitechapel, and they wanted answers. So, with the police not working with the press at all, the journalists were starved of news, so they adopted several means of obtaining information, information any way they could. They would shadow individual constables or detectives in the hope that they would lead them to a suspect or a witness. They would track down and interview witnesses to see if they could get a clean hint as to what, as to any answers. Or what any but or any leads. They would often try to bribe officers or attempt to loosen their tongues with drinks and get them nice and drunk. Some journalists even dressed up as women and set off into the streets of Whitechapel in the hope that they may be accosted with by Jack the Ripper, and in doing so gain a sensational scoop for their newspaper and when all else failed they would, could always make up stories right <laughs> but unfortunately these antics proved to be counterproductive to the police investigation into Jack the Ripper since these reportings threw up many false leads and red herrings that the overly outstretched of detectives had stretched into a breaking point. Also, the anti-Semitism that stories and such as the leather apron scare provoked diverted valuable police sources, such as on-the-ground constables, away from trying to prevent another ripper outrage to simply maintaining public order in that area. So, simply said, they were left high and dry with 
report is causing a lot of chaos and confusion and fear. Also, the police refused to issue a reward for someone who had caught who had caught Jack the Ripper because in 1883 in particular several several rewards ranging from $200 to $2,000 were offered in such cases as the murder of police constable Bones and the dynamite explosions in Carl Street. Now this is back in history. Um, these rewards like the $10,000 reward for the Phoenix Park murders were ineffectual and produced no evidence of any value. In 1884, there was a change in policy. A remarkable case occurred. A conspiracy was formed to effect an explosion at the German embassy to plant papers upon an innocent person and accuse him of the crime in order to obtain the reward which was expected. So basically, people were lying and placing things on an innocent person just to claim the money. So nobody could be trusted in shorthand. Now it was Henry Matthews of the Home Security who made that decision not to offer a reward for the capture of Jack the Ripper because people lie and cheat and steal when it all comes down to money. And that was to avoids an innocent person getting a a false charge placed upon him just based on somebody else's hearsay. Now, despite the home office's refusal to offer a reward in the capture of Jack the Ripper, there were several private individuals that did offer a reward such as Lord Mayor of the City of London which none of this had resulted in the killer's apprehension. There was mention of vague descriptions in the article. is interesting because, all fabricators aside, there were some important witnesses who had seen the face of Jack the Ripper. However, another valuable tool that the police would utilize today that wasn't used a great deal back in the Jack Jack the Ripper investigation was an artist's impression of what the killer might have looked like based on witnesses who had seen him with his victims. There were several people who may have seen the face of the Ripper, and an artist's composite sketch published in every London newspaper may have well been have brought an identification of a sub of a suspect from a neighbor or even a family member which is one of the most scary thoughts on the 20th of October 1888 the Illustrated Police News did publish two suspect sketches however these were little more than an artist's impression of one evil and villainous murderer, such as Jack the Ripper, should have looked like, as opposed to an accurate depiction of suspects based on witness descriptions. As such, they did 
little to help with the hunt of the Jack the Ripper and may have well hindered it since the police were not doing as well about tip offs tip offs about anyone who bore even the slightest resemblance to the crude suspect sketches. So now raises the even more hair-raising question. Who was Jack the Ripper? The number of Jack the Ripper suspects now runs to well over a hundred suspects. Some of them are highly possible contenders for the mantle of Jack the Ripper, but some are just downright ridiculous. So, the police have are now looking for more contemporary suspects. Like in the early days, the, the police appear to have believed that the crimes were, as we said before, carried out by local gangs. Investor investigations were focused on these so-called high-rip gangs. But, however, by early September, the police had come to the conclusion that were the other gangs responsible, the publicity and panic that the murders had generated would have led one of the members to inform on the others. So basically, one of the members is going to tattletale on somebody else, which didn't happen. So the police are now looking for a lone assassin. By the time of the murder of Annie Chapman on the 8th of September, the police seemed to, to have decided that they were in fact looking for one man and they were looking for any way, any way to bring him to justice. So, this brings us to another question. Was Jack the Ripper a doctor? To answer this question, the police began looking into the activities of several medical students who had spent time in asylums. But unfortunately, this line of inquiry drew a blank as the movements of these students were accounted for, and they were ruled out of involvement in the crimes. Which brings us to another question. Was he a butcher or a slaughterman? Others disagreed that the murderer was demonstrated any great degree of medical skill and opined that his abilities were little more than those of a butcher or a slaughterman. The police therefore carried out extensive inquiries amongst the numerous local butchers and slaughterhouses, but yet again nothing came of their investigations. All of the alibis checked out, thus eliminating those interviewed as suspects. So, did he live in the area? Throughout the hunt for Jack the Ripper, the police remained convinced that they were looking for a suspect who lived in the district or on the other whole of the area. Their inquiries and investigation focused on the, air, on the neighborhood where the crimes were occurring. 
Over 2,000 interviews were carried out by the Victorian police officers. More than 300 people were actually investigated, and 80 people were detained in in police custody. It is possible that Jack the Ripper was one of these, but none of the interviews, investigations, or detentions yielding anything concrete that enabled the police to point the finger at one suspect and say that he and he alone was the Jack the Ripper. Now we have a suspect list that keeps growing. Ever since Jack the Ripper's murders had ended, suspect after suspect had been put forward as being responsible for them. Prince Albert, Edward Victor, Lawrence Carroll, the Freemasons, and Dr. Bernardo are just a few of the more outlandish Jack the Ripper suspects to have been put forward. Others, such as Thomas Cutbush and Carl Feinberg, were put forward as around of the time of the murders, discarded as likely discarded as likely suspects, and then found themselves brought back to the frame thanks to modern research or their asylum records being open to the public. Some other suspects were James Maybrick, Walter Skickert, Charles Cross, Aaron Kosminski, George Chapman, Thomas Cutbush, Thomas Cutbush, as we mentioned before, and Carl Feinbaum. Also, Dr. Francis Tumblety. Aaron Kosminski was accused of being Jack the Ripper because of a major Jack of what Melville McNaughton said in 1894 in his memoranda. One of three men was more likely, even more so, than Thomas Cutbush to have been Jack the Ripper, according to McNaughton, and that was Aaron Kominsky, and this is what he has to say. Kominsky was a Polish Jew and resident of the White Chapel. This man became insane owing many years of indulgence in solitary vices. He had a great hatred of women, especially the prostitute class, and had strong homicidal tendencies. He was removed to a lunatic asylum about March 18, 1889. Now, Inspector Amberlin suspected George Chapman to be Jack the Ripper based upon that he had medical education and yeah he was a murderer and a poisoner he killed his wife that's just to name a few a couple 
suspects in the Jack, Jack the Ripper case. Another suspect was Michael Ostrog, who was a Russian doctor and a convict who had been detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac. And his whereabouts, his whereabouts were never ascertained. He was a favorited suspect by McNaughton again. I also want to point out that McNaughton clearly knew surprisingly surprisingly little about his suspects. He only took bits and pieces out of context. Now, Ostrog was a petty thief and a con artist, but he was not known to be violent. His adult years consisted, though, of long periods of incarceration. His only recorded act of violence was in a long criminal career when he's arrested in 1873 by police superintendent Thomas Oswald, who he had pulled a, re- a revolver on in a police station. One newspaper described Ostrog as having a clever head, a good education, and polished manners. And it also observed that he would be certain to succeed in almost any honest life to which he might devote himself, but who, but who nevertheless, he's a criminal, basically. Now, following a particularly harsh prison sentence of almost 10 years, he was released on August 28th. 1883. Now he now he was arrested again with his petty crimes in 1887 after he stole a metal tankard from the Royal Military Academy on Woolwich. But he was released on the 10th of March 1888. And he had disappeared without a trace after that. So why did the police suspect him? Later that year in 1888, at the height of the Ripper Scare, when the consensus among the police detectives was that they were looking for a lunatic with medical knowledge, like as we said before, they believed that no one without any medical knowledge could have made such injuries to the bodies. There. So they began looking into asylums that asylum releases that might coincide with the site of the murders. So basically that's the only reason why they looked even looked into him. It's because he had been into an asylum with medical experience. And I also want to point out that there is nothing in Ostrog's long criminal career to suggest that he was a homicidal, had he had homicidal tendencies, or any records of him ever attacking women.
and he wasn't even in France at the time of the murders. He was in a French prison until his release in November of 1890. So really, this inspector who was looking into him really had no idea what he was talking about. Melville McNaughton had no idea what he's talking about. I'm sorry. This took, completely took things out of context. So all basically that Michael Ostrog was, was he was a petty thief. And he was more of a harm to himself than others. Now another favorite suspect of McNaughton was Montag John Druitt. And Druitt worked as a barrister and supplemented his income at the bar by working as an assistant schoolmaster at a boarding school in Blackheath, southeast London, and that was run by Mr. George Valentine. McNaughton lists him as one of the three suspects he claims that were far more likely than Thomas Cutbush to have been Jack the Ripper. Now I'm going to give you a little tidbit of what McNaughton describes Mr. Drew as. A doctor of about 41 years of age and a fairly good family who had disappeared at the time of the Miller's court murder and whose body was found floating at the at the Thames on the 31st of December, seven weeks after the said murder. The body was said to have been in the water for a month or more. From private information, I have little doubt that, but that his own family suspected this man of being the Whitechapel murderer. It is alleged that he is sexually insane. Now, with that comment being made, I wanted to point out that I did hear that they did suspect Jack the Ripper of having syphilis. And as we know, syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease that, left untreated, can attack the brain. And in, in, in so less words, could make them insane or make them diverse into make them act like children, if you will. Now, in November of 1888, Jurek committed suicide and from, quote, an unsound mind. Um, he drowned, he committed suicide by drowning in a, in the River Thames. And he had been floating there for a while before he was found which is actually quite sad if you think about it, even if he was innocent. Which, if this McNaughton had been investigating, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably was innocent, maybe not, I don't know, because I honestly don't know who Jack the Ripper was, but you can't go by what McNaughton suspected, because obviously he just took things out of Contacts and just saw things what he wanted to see him as. So who knows? His name was ruined after he had been accused of being Jack the Ripper. 
And the last man I'm going to mention for the Jack the Ripper segment is a man named Walter Walter Sickert. The name of Walter Sickert has been linked to Jack the Ripper murders by several authors, and over the years, his role in the killings has said to be varied enormously. According to some authors, he was an accomplice in the Whitechapel murders, whilst others had depicted him as known as who was responsible for the crimes and duly informing on them. So, according to crime novelist Patricia Cornwell in her 2002 book, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper, case closed, Sickert was in the fact the man who carried out the crimes that had been that became better known as Jack the Ripper Murders. So, it was said that according to Cornwell's theory about Walter Sickert, had been made impotent, he so she believes that he he had been made impotent by a series of painful childhood operations for a viscula of the penis. This Impressy had scarred him emotionally and had left him with the pathological hatred of women, which in time led him to carry out a series of murders in the East End of London. Doubts were raised about her theory, and it was pointed out that St. Mark's Hospital, where the operations on the young Sickert were supposedly performed, specialized in rectal as opposed to genital fasciculus. But was Sickert impotent? It was also pointed out that the evidence suggested that Sickert was anything but impotent. Indeed, his first wife had divorced him, citing his adultery in her petition for divorce. In addition, he is believed to have several mistresses, and he is thought to have fathered at least one illegitimate child. So, the case for Sickert's impotency bears to have no existence in this trial. Is there evidence of a pathological hatred of women? Again, not a great deal. In the book A Portrait of a Killer, Cornwell cites a series of Sickert's paintings which were inspired by the murder of, by the murder in 1908 of a Camden Town prostitute by the name of Emily Dimmock. According to Patricia Corwell's hypothesis, this series of pictures bears a striking resemblance to the post-mortem photographs of the victims of Jack the Ripper. Now I leave you with this. Now, there is no little doubt that Sickard was fascinated with murder and in finding different ways in which to depict the menace of the crime and the criminal. But to cite this as evidence in that he was an actual murderer, specifically the murderer who carried out the Jack the Ripper killings, is hardly definitive proof. So, did he live in the area? When looking at particular Jack the Ripper suspect, or any murder suspect for that matter, 
you need to be able to link your suspect to the crime. So where's the link? You need to be able to place them at the scene of the crime. Here again, the case against Sickert unravels slightly, since there is evidence to, su- to suggest that he may not have even been in London, I mean England, whenever the murders were committed. There were a number of letters from several family members members referred to him as holidaying in France for a time period that corresponds with most of the Ripper murders. So, I'm going to roll him out too. Although it has been suggested that I mean that he might have traveled to London in order to commit the murders and then return to France, but there's no evidence that has been produced to suggest that. So, who do you guys think was the Jack the Ripper murderer? You let me know, either here on Anchor.com or on Facebook. All right. That ends it for this story. We move on to our second segment in Bavaria, Germany, known as Hinterkaffect. I'll see you guys there. See you soon. I just want to mention something that I don't think I mentioned clearly enough earlier in this segment. That after Jack the Ripper's fifth victim, the murder just stopped. He magically just went poof, just, it just, like, vanished, and the investigation still went on, but he just stopped, I mean, we know he took that break in between the third and fourth victim, but after the fifth, it just stopped happening, some say that it was because he got too close to getting caught, Some say he was killed. Who knows? And some say that he was, he traveled all the way to America. And even some even say that he was here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But who knows? Because even nobody really knows for sure who he was or why he was doing it. Was it a he or was it a she? I'm going to say it was a he. But who knows? I could be wrong. You guys let me know what you guys think down in the comments. Alright, I'm going to turn it on to our next segment, our next mystery murder. Alright, bye guys.
Hello, and welcome back to our second segment of Dummy Mont Paranormal Podcast. Um, in this second segment, I want to take y'all to Bavaria, Germany. In 1922, Hinterkaifeck. Now, Hinterkaifeck was a small farmstead situated between the Bavaria towns of Ingolstadt and Strobohausen. Now, this is approximately 70 kilometers or 43 miles north of Munich. Now, Hinterkaifeck is one of Germany's most puzzling unsolved crimes in all of the German history. So when did this take place? It took place on the evening of the 31st of March, 1922, when six inhabitants of the farm were killed with a mattock, which is kind of like an axe. The six victims were Andreas Gruber, who was 63, Kazelia Gruber, who was he, who was Andrea, Andreas Gruber's wife, and she was 72. They had a daughter living with them, and her name was Victoria. She was 35. And Victoria's children, who was Kazelia, who was 7 years old, and Joseph, who was 2 years old. And also, they had a maid that came and lived with, lived with them. Her name was Maria Baumgartner, and she was 44 years old. So, strange things began to occur in and around Hinterkaifeck, sometime shortly just days before the attack. In the six months before the attack, the family maid had quit. Now, this was the family maid that came before Maria Baumgartner. It was widely believed that she claimed her reason for leaving was that she thought the house was haunted. She said that she heard strange no- noises in the attic, but this went um, this went unsubstantiated. Nothing in her actual statement to the police suggests that this is why she left the family house that she worked for. Also, Andreas Gruber found a strange newspaper from Munich on the property in March 1922, and since they were 70 miles away from Munich, it was a bit strange, obviously. And he could not remember buying this newspaper, so this is why, so this is why Gruber initially thought that the postman had lost the newspaper and it it belonged to somebody else. This was not the case, however, as no one in the vicinity was ever subscribed to the newspaper. So, not even the mailman had this newspaper subscribed to him. And just days before the murder, Gruber told neighbors that he discovered tracks in the fresh snow that led from the forest to the broken back door of the farm's machine room. While this alone was not unsettling, it was the fact that the tracks did not seem to lead away from the house again, and that's what scared him. 
It didn't scare him that there were tracks leading up to his machine room, but there was none leading back to the forest, and that's what freaked him out. And, of course, around the same time, some of the family's house keys went missing as well. Later during the night, they heard strange footsteps in the attic, but Gruber found no one when he searched the building. Although he told several people about these alleged observations, he refused to accept help, and the details went unreported to the police. According to a school friend of the seven-year-old Cazelia Gabriel, the young girl reported that her mother, Victoria, had fled the farm in the night before the act of a violent quarrel and only hours before, only to be found in the forest hours later after this violent fight she ran away from. The family also reported observing a strange man with a mustache standing at the, forest, the, the edge of the forest and staring towards the house, apparently watching them and observing them. Now between March 30th and April 1st, 1922, strange things continued. But on the afternoon of March 31st, 1922, which was a Friday by the way, the new maid, Maria Baumgartner, arrived on the farm. Maria's sister had escorted her there and left the farm after a short stay. She was most likely the last person to see all the family alive, including the maid. It appears that late in that evening, Victoria Gabriel and her seven-year-old daughter and her parents, Andreas and Cazelia, were lured into the family born through the stable where they were all murdered one at a time. The perpetrator or perpetrators used a mattock belonging to the family farm and killed the family with blows to the head. The perpetrator moved into the living quarters where with the same exact welcome weapon he killed the little baby who was named Joseph who was sleeping in his bassinet, and he also killed Baumgartner, who was sleeping in her bedchamber. Chamber. Now, before I move on to the discovery and the investigations, now, if you saw tracks leading up to your house and up to your farm's machine room, I think that would freak me out even more that there were mysterious footprints I'd be looking everywhere. I don't think I'd just look this once, you know, I'd look like several times and then be back there every day to make sure if or when there's fresh footprints in the snow. Because where did they go? Did they disappear? Was it a ghost? Who knows? My initial thought that would be maybe it is a ghost. And also, I learned from somewhere else that Little Cazelia, Victoria's daughter, who had the same name as her grandmother, also thought that the house was haunted because she was hearing strange footsteps and noises, and I think she might have saw, she might have seen a man as well, but I'm not sure. But she also thought the house was haunted. But, you know, her mother said, oh, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of, and it's not haunted, and you just have and overactive imagination and stuff like that, but 
that's somewhere else that I've heard about that you know so I just want to say that like how these murders happened someone would hear a strange noise and they that would kind of lure them out you know into the farmland and they would somebody would run up behind them and smack them in the head with a mattock and then the person next to them like say Andreas and Cazelia would wake up and you know they'd be like what is that sound and then J.S. walked out to see what it was and he would get killed and then when he didn't return his wife Cazelia would walk out look for him and somebody would run up behind her and get her in the head with the mattock and it just continues down the line then after the after the grandmother then the daughter would come and then the daughter's daughter would come out after it just like keep going down the line until finally he moved into the living quarters after he killed four people and he finished off the job by killing Joseph and Maria which is really quite creepy and sick in my opinion but that's why I'm doing this podcast because this story just gets me every time it's absolutely creepy and it's even more creepy that it was never actually fully solved but we're gonna get into that in just one moment so let's move on to the discovery of the victims so four days passed between the murders and the discovery of the bodies on the 1st of April coffee sellers arrived in Hinterkaifeck to place an order but when no one responded to the knocks on the door and the window They walked around the yard but found no one. They only noticed that the gate of the machine house was open before they decided to leave. Cazelia Gabriel was also absent without excuse for the next days of school, and the family failed to show up for Sunday worship. But on Monday, April 3rd, the the postman, Joseph Mayer, was delivering the mail at Hinterkaifecht when he noticed the the Saturday's mail was still left where he had left it, and no one had been in the yard. Assembler Albert Hoffner went to Hunter Kaifecht on April 4th to repair the engine of the food chopper. He stated that he had not seen any of the family and had not heard nothing but the sounds of the of the farm animals and the dogs inside the barn. Now, after waiting for an hour, he decided to start his repair, which he completed in about four and a half hours. In Grobarn, around 2.30 p.m., he met the daughters of the village guide, who was Lawrence Schlittenhauser. Schlittenbauer. Schlittenbauer, sorry, Schlittenbauer and told them that the repairs in Hinterkaifecht were done. Hoffner also told, told, told George Gregor, the mayor of Vingen, about the ghostly emptiness of Hinterkaifecht. Now, George Gregor was the mayor of Vingen, So, around 
3.30 p.m., Schlichtenbauer sent his son, Johann, who was 16, and the stepson, Joseph, who was only nine, to Hinterkaifecht to see if they could make so they could make contact with the family. When they reported that they couldn't see anyone, Schlittenbauer headed to the farm the same day with Michael Pohl and Jacob Siegel. Entering the barn, they found the bodies of Andreas Gruber, his wife Cazelia, his daughter Victoria, his granddaughter Cazelia, and all, mur- all murdered in the barn. Shortly after, they found the chambermaid, Maria, and the youngest family member, Victoria's son, Joseph, who was murdered in the home. So that's a pretty eerie and creepy experience. Imagine being so, being so young as being 9 years old and discovering that, or even 16 years old. I bet that scarred them for life. Now we move on to the investigation. Inspector George Rangruber and his colleagues from the Munich Police Department investigated the killings. Initial investigations were hampered by the number of people who had interacted with the crime scene, as in they moved bodies and items around and even cooked and ate meals in the kitchen. Why would they do that? Honestly, even for back then, why would you do that? Anyway, the day after the discovery of the bodies, court physician Johann Baptist Emmuller performed the autopsies in the barn. It was established that a mattock was the most likely murder weapon, though the weapon itself was not at the scene. Evidence shows that the younger Cazelia had been alive for several hours after the assault. She had torn her hair out in tufts while lying in the straw. The skulls of the victims were removed and sent to Munich, where they were further examined. The heads were last kept in a justice building in Augsburg and were later lost possibly destroyed in the Allied bombings of World War II. On Saturday, April 8th, the victims were finally buried in the Wadehofen Cemetery. The police first expected the motive to be robbery, so they interrogated traveling craftsmen and vagrants and several inhabitants of the surrounding villages. When a large amount of money was found in the house, they abandoned this theory. It was clear the perpetrators or the perpetrator had remained at the farm for several days. Someone had fed the cattle, eaten the supply of bread in the kitchen, and recently cut meat from the pantry. It was also possible that the perpetrator remained on this site for a few days after the, after the discovery. Also, neighbors reported seeing smoke coming from the chimney all weekend. The perpetrator would have easily found the money if a robbery had been the motivation for this crime, but the money remained untouched. With no clear motive to be gleaned from the crime scene, the police began to formulate a list of suspects. Despite repeated arrests, no murderer was ever found and the files were closed in 1955. 
Nevertheless, the last interrogations took place in 1986 before Conrad Mueller, Mueller had retired. In all, there were more than 100 suspects that have been questioned regarding this crime, but nothing ever yielded a conclusive result. So, that being said, there are some inconsistencies with this story, some things that didn't make sense. Apparently, if you're standing in the living room area of the Hinterkaifeck farmstead, you would not be able to hear screaming or any type of noises coming from the barn. So that raises suspicion of why any family member would be lured out to the um, outside near the farms where these murders took place. So it had to be something of maybe they saw something or they were just thus somebody was taking too long to come back and they went out to find them themselves to see if they're okay. Because if they didn't hear anything, they must have either seen something or just went out of their own curiosity. Also, it is believed that actually the maid was killed first, and then the second victim would have been little Joseph, and then the third would have been Andreas, and then his wife, and then the... And then, okay, so... After that, it would have been the daughter, Victoria, and then little Cazelia. So it was absolutely reversed than what they originally thought. Also, the assumption has often been, been made that the killer was already in the premises and inside the roof before the act, based on all these stories Gruber told his neighbors before his death. But some of the evidence for this, for this theory concluded shifted roof tiles and hollows of the hay, but these were later interpreted as possible hiding spots for the incestuous activities of Andreas Gruber and his daughter Victoria. This would explain why these irregularity, irregularities were unnoticed by Gruber if he had in fact thoroughly searched the farm for the several times that he said that he did. Also, on the night of the crime, three days before the bodies were discovered, the artisan Michael Plotel happened to pass by Hinterkaifeck. Plotel observed that the oven had been heated by someone that person had approached, approached him with a lantern and blinded him. Thereupon, he hastily made his way. He hastily continued on his way. He was like, nope, I'm getting out of here. Plockle also noticed that the smoke from the fireplace had a disgusting smell. This instance was not investigated, and there are no investigations conducted to determine what was burning in the oven that night. Also, another strange thing about this story was that on April 1st of at 3 o'clock in the morning, the farmer and a butcher who were on their way home named Brennan saw two unknown figures at the 
edge of the forest. When the strangers saw him, they turned around so their faces could not be seen. Later, when he heard of the murders in Hinterkaifeck, he thought it was possible that these strangers might have been involved. So he thought that they acted suspicious, and he had never seen them before. And when he heard about Hinterkaifeck, he thought, well, maybe that, maybe I saw something, maybe it was them who killed that poor family. Also, the fitter, Albert Hoffner, was at Hinterkaifeck for several hours of repair work after the crime, but was only questioned in 1925 as the police had failed to conduct a proper interrogation immediately after the crime. His statement suggests that the perpetrator was back in the yard during the time of the repair. The doors of the house had been locked, and he had not met anyone, but he did hear the dogs barking inside. At the end of his repair, a dog was tied up outside instead, of, instead and the barn door was open, so somebody had to let the dog out. When, a dog, when the men discovered the bodies later that day, the dog was inside again. The barn door and the barn door had been closed again. Now, in the middle of the day of May in 1927, a stranger was said to to have stopped a resident of Fadehaufen at midnight. He asked some questions about the murder and then shouted, that he was the murderer before he ran into the woods. This stranger was never, ever, ever identified. All right, y'all, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about some of the victims that were suspected in this case. The husband of Victoria Gabriel, who was named Carl Gabriel, he was reportedly killed in World War II. I mean. Sorry, the First World War in December of 1914. However, his body had been never recovered. And after the murders, people began to speculate if he indeed did die in the war. Victoria Gabriel had given birth to an illegitimate child, and that was little Joseph. In her husband's absence, two-year-old little Joseph was rumored to be the son of Victoria and her own father, Andreas, who, as we know, as we just uh, mentioned in the earlier segment of this podcast, they had an incestuous relationship. And that incestuous relationship was documented in court and even known in the village. Some theorized that Carl Gabriel killed killed the family to seek revenge, although soldiers from his regiment testified to his death and the police were inclined to believe them. This theory gained gained new nourishment over the years, after people reportedly reported that they had met Gabriel or could conform, conform that he had exchanged his identity to that of a fallen comrade. So, at the end of the Second World War, more captives from the 
Strobenhausen region were released prematurely from the Soviet captivity and claimed that they had been sent home by a German-speaking Soviet officer who claimed to be the murderer of Hinterkaifeck. Some of these men later revised their statements, however, which diminishes the credibility. Many theorized that this Soviet may be Carl Gabriel, because those who have, that have claimed to have seen the man after his, his reported death testified that Gabriel had wanted to go to Russia. Whether Carl Gabriel lived through World War I can never be known for certain, and if even it could, there is no proven that he was the Hinterkaifeck killer. So that's so there's suspect number one. Now suspect number two is Lorenz Schlittenbauer. Schlittenbauer. Now after the death of his first wife in 1918, Lorenz Schlittenbauer was believed to be in a relationship with Victoria Gabriel, and actually he had Father Joseph, the little boy. The initials S, I mean the initial, the initials LS appears on Joseph's birth certificate. Even though these, even though these initials could be the initials of an attending doctor, Schlittenbauer became under suspicion by locals early in the investigation because of his several suspicious actions immediately after the discovery of the bodies. When Schlittenbauer and his friends came to investigate, they had to break a gate to to enter the barn because all the doors were locked. Um, However, immediately after finding the four bodies in the barn, Schlittenbauer apparently unlocked the front door with a key and suspiciously, suspiciously entered the house alone. The key to the house had gone missing for several days, as we mentioned before. Although it was possible that Schlittenbauer was a neighbor, or as Victoria's potential level, lever, and he may have had a key, when asked by when asked by his companions why he had gone alone into the house when it was unclear if the murderer murderer might have been still there, Schlittenbauer allegedly stated that he went to look for his son Joseph, regardless of any of the above rumors. It is known that Schlittenbauer had disturbed the bodies of the scene, thus potentially promising compromising the investigation. Now, Schlittenbauer had remained under suspicion because of his strange actions and comments, and he was seen indicating knowledge of details of the killer not everyone would know. But according to reports of the files for the case, local teacher Hans Blogger discovered Schlittenbauer visiting the remains of the demolished Hinterkaifeck house in 1925. When being asked why he was there, Schlittenbauer stated that the perpetrator's attempt to bury the family's remains in the yard had been hindered by frozen ground. 
This was seen as evidence that Schlittenbauer had intimate knowledge of the conditions of the ground at the time of the murders. Although being a neighbor and familiar with the local land, he may have been taking an educated guess. Another speculation was that Schlittenbauer murdered the family after Victoria demanded financial support for little baby Joseph. Before his death in 1941, Schlitten conducted and won several civil claims for slander against persons who described him as the murderer of Hinterkaufecht. Another couple suspects in the murder case are the Gump brothers. On April 9th of 1922, lead Ryan Gruber wanted to question Adolf Gump in connection of the murders when it had been rumored that he was in a relationship with Victoria. However, there's no evidence of this to prove this claim. With three others, Adolf Gump had participated in the murder of nine peasants in Silesia. Brian Gruber could not rule out Adolf Gump's potential involvement in the murders at Hinterkaifecht. He instructed the correspondent stations to ask for an alibi for the last few days in March of 1922. In 1951, prosecutor Andreas Pop investigated Adolf's brother Anton Gump in the relation to the murders of Hinterkaifecht. But the sister of the Gumps claimed on her deathbed that her brothers, both Adolf and Anton, had committed the murders. As a result, Anton Gumpt was reprimanded to police custody, but Adolf had already died in 1944. After a short time, however, Anton was dismissed again, and in 1955, the case against him was finally discontinued because he could not be proven to have ever participated in the crime. Another person who was suspected was Peter Weber. Peter Weber was was named a suspect by Joseph Beetz. These two worked together in the winter of 1919 going into 1920 as laborers as they they shared a chamber. According to Beats, Weber spoke of the time of a remote farm, which was known as Hinterkaifecht. Weber knew that only one old couple lived there with their daughter and her two children. It is likely that he knew about the incest between Gruber and his daughter. Beats testified in a hearing that Weber had suggested killing the old man to get the family's mummy. When Beats did not respond to the offer, Weber stopped talking about it. Two more, oh no, actually three more suspects in this case was the Beckler brothers and George Siegel. The former maid, Karen's Regler, worked worked in November 1922 to about September 1921 in Hinterkaifecht. She suspected the brothers Anton and Carl Beckler to committed the cr- to have committed the crimes. Anton Beckler had helped with the potato harvest on Hinterkaifecht, so he knew the premises. Riegler said that Beckler talked 
to her often about the Gruber and Gabriel family. Anton reportedly suggested that the family ought to be dead. The maid, the maid also emphasized in her interrogation on that the farm dog, who barked at everyone, had never ever barked at Anton. In addition, she reported speaking to a stranger through her window at night. The maid believed that it was Carla Bickler, the brother of Anton. She thought that Anton and Carl may have committed the murder together with George Siegel, who had worked at Hinter Cafect and knew the family. That he knew of the family fortune. Supposedly, Seigel had broken into the home of no- on November 1920, 1920 and had stolen a number of items, but he denied this. He did state that he had carved the handle of the murder weapon when he was working at Hinterkaifeck and knew the tool would have been kept in a barn passage. Alright, and I have two more suspects I'm going to tell y'all about. The first of the final two suspects is the Thaler brothers. A lot of brothers were being suspected in this crime. The Thaler brothers were all suspected according to a statement by the former maid. This maid always runs her mouth about other people, doesn't she? But according to this maid, the brothers had already committed several minor burglaries in the area around the crime. She says that Joseph Thaler stood at her window at night and asked her questions about the family, but she gave no answer. In conversation, Joseph Thaler claimed that to know each family member was sleeping in each room and stated that they had a lot of money. He also stated he also stated that the Quayside had a lot of has a lot of money as well. During their conversation, she noted that there was another person nearby. According to her statement, Joseph Thaler and the stranger looked at the machine house and their eyes turned upwards. And our last suspect is Paul Mueller. Now, Paul Mueller is a suspect by author author Bill James in his book, The Man from the Train. He feels that he's responsible for the murders. The murders bear some similarities to his crimes in the United States. Now, these are the crimes of Paul Mueller, including the slaughter of an entire family in their isolated home with the use of a blunt edge of a farm tool as a weapon, known as a pickaxe, in the apparent absence of robbery as a motive. The authors suspect that Mueller, described as a German immigrant in contemporary media, might have been departed the U.S. for his homeland after private investigators and journalists began to notice and publicize patterns in family murders across state lines following the Brazen 1912 murder of two families in a single night in Colorado Springs, Colorado. In a singular family weeks afterward, a few hundred miles away in neighboring Kansas. 
So what do you guys think? Like I said before, this case has never been solved. It is still a mystery to this day. Just like our Jack the Ripper case. Nobody knows for sure. Everybody has their suspects and everybody has their theories. But nobody absolutely, conclusively knows who it was or what the motive was. But you guys let me know what you think. Who do you think it was? And what do you think the motive was? I mean, obviously, obviously, some people suspected others for silly reasons, such as um, this one man I left out because it wasn't, he was suspected of being a murderer for a strange reason. And it really had nothing to do with anything that would have made sense with the evidence at the crime scene. Andreas S., as we know, was accused of being the Hindu Catholic murderer because a pocket knife was seen on the property and around the Hindu Catholic property. So the maid again ran her mouth and accused him of being the murderer just because there was a pocket knife found and she knew who the pocket knife allegedly belonged to. So she accused him of being the Hintrakaifect murderer. And also, the mother of this man made a comment that related to somehow of how he regretted that he lost his pocket knife. And that's how he was um, tied to this incident, but nothing ever came of it. And that does it for this segment for tonight. I hope you guys really like this episode. I hope you like this podcast. And I will see you in the outro. And why don't you guys let me know, once again, who do you think it was? Because every time I relate to this story, it drives me absolutely nuts. I mean, who was it? He or she, maybe it was a disgruntled wife of one of the guys that the daughter of Victoria had slept with, supposedly. Or maybe it was her allegedly dead husband who came back to Germany and found out that she had had a son with somebody else. Maybe Lorenz Littenbauer or her own dad. Who knows? It's still a mystery to this day. And it's still creepy and interesting. I wonder if they'll ever find out the absolute truth. Maybe someday they will.
Alright y'all, thank you so, so much for joining me for this episode. Now tell me if you would rather enjoy a mix of mystery and paranormal or just plain out paranormal podcast episodes. You guys let me know down in the comments, either here or on Facebook.com. And join me next week as we do either one or two new episodes. I think it might be two next week. Since we only got to do one this week. I really enjoy doing these episodes. And I hope you enjoy listening to them. Um. Like I said before. I'm Tori from Demi Mont Paranormal. And I hope you decide to join us on Facebook.com. Or a group on there. Just Google us in. Or just search us in the search bar. And we should come up. You know request to join. And I'll approve you and. You'll be welcome to the family. Welcome to the Demi Monge Paranormal family. You're welcome to post as much as you want. It could be serious things. It could be you could look for help. You could look for opinions. And even you can just post stuff that you like. Some dark art or even music. But everything must be paranormal related. Alright, with that being said... Oh, and that also includes everything paranormal, not just ghosts. It could be vampires, werewolves, aliens, um, demons, angels, different types of ghosts, different kinds of spirits, fairies. It also could be a weird history. Whatever you want it to be. Unexplained mysteries, anything of, like, of that sort that goes into that soft white underbelly of what could not be explained. Alright, with that being said, without any further ado, I do wish you good night, and I wish to see you next week for an all-new period, an all-new episode. Until then, good night, and sweet dreams.